Ladies and gentlemen, this is the 14th reason. This is Nick Brown, Frowny Brown from Frowny Brown Town. This is Ladies from What Culture. This is El Diablo, El Dorado, El Dorito. And of course, this is Close to the Sun on July 18th, 2017. I'm a tank! interesting week last week yeah i had to had my first uni assignments and that but the main thing i did that was interesting at least was uh i went to a basically a spoken word talk called capturing pablo which was all about the pablo escobar case they had two the two deas that the show narco narcos is based on on netflix they came down they did a massive talk on it and just kind of gave a few insider details and yeah it's a it was incredibly interesting hearing them talk about it and just, you know, it was one of those things because it was such a dark subject that it was, you know, they kind of used humor. They had to use humor to kind of lighten it up. And of course, that is the case. Like, you know, if you're going to go around doing, you know, spoken word tours, you can't just be completely serious. You'll fucking drive yourself insane. But like, I've wanted to like talk a little bit about just how this guy was, how this Pablo Escobar, this drug lord from um, Colombia, it's uh, it's pretty staggering. Like, this is a guy whose estimated net worth was between eight and thirty billion dollars. Like, that's a that's a pretty crazy discrepancy for one. He was vote like not voted. He was put in a magazine as the seventh richest man in the world three times. He was like awarded this prize by like an American magazine. It's just crazy that they would um they would just show it up like they would show that off. You know, like, just some of the ways he would, um, like, you know, smuggle cocaine and all that in. You know, he'd smuggle it through grapefruits, through tires. He'd, like, strip down a bulldozer from the inside and completely fill that up. And once it got over to Miami, they would fill it completely up with money and send it back. It's a lot of money. Yeah, it would cost, like, they said it would cost about $5,000 for them to make, package, and send one kilo of cocaine to Miami. Because that was where the big scene was at the time. In return, they got $80,000 for it. Somehow of a profit. And not only that, they sent out 2,500 kilos per day. Yeah, do the math. Like, it was like, imagine having so much money that you just didn't know what to do with it. Imagine having unlimited resources and just being able to spend whatever you want and honestly have too much money to the point where you just had to spend. Because you can't put this money in the bank. He had to bury money. He had to bury cocaine. He had around 30 to 40 holes, basically, with full-on tons of cocaine in there. 
and you had to bury him in the forests and the jungles. And same with money, he'd forget. He'd like put like five hundred thousand dollars in this big hole, and they'd forget about it because it's only five hundred thousand dollars. Who cares? It's worth nothing to Pablo, really. Yeah, it's like this guy was. He was very full on, like he's pretty evil dude. They say he estimated he killed up to ten to fifteen thousand innocent people. And it's always interesting when people say that, and this talk never really touched on it, but. I always wonder, how does somebody get to that stage? You know, how does somebody become that person? Because no, I don't think you're born bad. I don't believe in that. Like, It's almost like this perfect storm has to occur for you to really... I don't know. It's, it's, it really is incredible when you actually think about somebody to have that little remorse and think that little of other human lives. It's just you know, something to think about. Like... Yeah, and in Colombia, he was regarded by a lot of people as like a Robin Hood. You know, steal from the rich, or like, you know, take money from the rich and give to the poor. And still to this day, he is. He's still regarded by many. You, are, you have been strongly recommended by anyone in Colombia, do not talk ill of Pablo Escobar because you could get in some really big trouble. Yeah, one of the most visited sites in Colombia is his gravesite. That's one of the biggest tourist attractions. And it's funny how like that is, and we are very obsessed with these kind of historical killers and just kind of trying to like, I don't know, when I, when I watch it, I always try and think of like how, what was going through this guy's head. Yeah, it's, is it wasn't an opportunity thing. Well, did he see an opportunity and just, did he go, well, I'd rather, I'd rather do that. You know, like, if you were presented with an opportunity to make a shitload of money as opposed to making minimal, especially when you're in that climate and you're in like, yeah, you know, in Colombia, which was a pretty ratty country to be in. Yeah. You know, as much as you don't agree with what he did and everything like that, you can understand why he got to a position where he probably did what he did. And like, it's interesting because like you could look at it from a few different angles. I think one of them is like, maybe he got to a place where he had no choice. Like, you know, it's very hard to get out of a drug industry. I'd, I'd assume, you know, it's very hard to get out of something, especially when you are like the absolute kingpin. So for somebody to walk up the one day and be like, ah, oh, boys, I'm just putting in my two weeks notice. Like, I just, that's not how you, that's not how Pablo would work. You know, he, I think like he might've just gotten in too deep and it's, yeah, it just got away from him. Yeah, and, it's it's an interesting, like, was he just a victim of his own success? Yeah, you can't, like, it's impossible to say how somebody would react given that many resources and that much money. Yeah, it's, like, they, put it this way, they, they would have, you would, um, you would try to become a waiter for Pablo Escobar because the, um, in five days' time, you would make about $80,000 worth of tips. Just imagine making that kind of money. Like, and it's risky, of course, but yeah, it's a risk, risk versus reward kind of thing. And there was one story they the guys told where it was about this uh, one of the waiters. Yeah, and with sorry, with all the money in that, the reason why he gets so much is because it was a case of one um, one upmanship. Yeah, these guys 
you know, money means nothing to all these massive guys, Pablo and all his friends. Like they'd have barbecues, which is another word, like, you know, parties, which would go for three to five days. Yeah, and money meant nothing. So they were just like, you know what? Let's just, you know, and if somebody chucked him two grand, they'd be like, next time we could try and chuck him three. Like, you know, just trying to outdo each other. Even for little stuff like that. You know, there was this one time where the waiter got accused of stealing plates and like cutlery from Pablo. And you'd assume like, just for someone saying that, you wouldn't, you wouldn't just plead him guilty kind of thing. And you wouldn't think it mean much to him considering how much he's worth. But... Yeah, Pablo gets him out, gets him in front of the pool, and uh, you know has a bit of a talk to him, and then they tie his arms and they tie his legs, and they just push him in the pool. And for the next few minutes, their entertainment is watching someone struggle and watching someone drown. It's very, very eerie, like to think about that, to really actually like. Yeah, it sounds like, oh, holy shit. But like when you actually think about if you were in that room, if you were flying on the wall at that stage and just seeing somebody do that and just have just such little, such having no conscience, it's crazy. Like, and the thing is like, I don't think, you know, all these historical figures, you look at like the token ones, you know, Pablo, you look at like someone like Hitler or even like most recently ISIS. I think ISIS is an interesting one. Because I honestly think that they're not all bad people. I really don't. I think that, you know, that in their minds, they think they're doing the right thing. A lot of them. I'm sure a few people are probably on just the evil, just bad people and probably know what they're doing. But I think a majority of them would be, you know, if you get told something growing up, as I was saying last week with Justin, if somebody tells you something growing up, whether it was... You know, like the earth is flat or this is the right way to think or whatever. And then later on, somebody tries to challenge your belief. Of course, you're going to be a bit, you know, of course, you're going to retaliate and you're going to be like, no, well, this is how it is. So in my opinion, this, these people, these, you know, as they call them, like extremists are probably, probably thinking that they're doing the right thing for their people. And they probably think we're the evil, like we're the enemy. Western culture, Western society is the enemy here. Yeah, it's just a bit of food for thought kind of thing. Yeah, um, Pablo was a guy, had 600 properties. <laughs> 600 properties there. Just imagine that. Like imagine having so much money that you just didn't know what to do with it and the thing is with these properties he wouldn't step he wouldn't step foot in half of them because of the reason because he just had to spend the money that's why you can't put this money in a bank remember yeah so he had to bought 600 properties and most of the architects got killed off well let's be honest all the architects got killed off because people, you know, agents that would go to them and try and get information how they've designed the house. You know, what's this manhole? And like, apparently they all got it from Italy, which was really interesting because you'd think after a while, after about the, the third or fourth person doesn't come back from Colombia, you'd think you'd be like, oh, maybe I won't go over there. I've, I haven't seen, you know, Mario or Luigi, most stereotypical names ever, <laughs> come over, come back from Colombia in three years, you know? <laughs> but that's just... The power of this guy. 
yeah, this he tried to bribe a judge once, and the judge says no. They kill him and they kill his family. Madness, isn't it? Like, and yeah, they posed a really nice question that I, I thought was really like interesting because they would say they get these people to smuggle cocaine and like you know back then and they call this pre nine eleven because pre nine eleven you could get away with a lot. Pre nine eleven, a lot of people would literally just strap cocaine to their body. And if they didn't get checked, they'd be fine. Like, and they'd look like they'd have fucking humpback. They'd look like that bloke from Three Hundred. And they, you know, if they didn't get checked, then who cares? But th- what they did was they used to get people who were probably not as well off, and you know they'd get them to basically swallow condoms of co- cocaine. And uh, you know they dip it in wax and they do all these kind of things to make sure it wouldn't break. Because yo, know, if one of those condoms breaks in your system, you're dead. Like, there's no way you're no way you're getting out of that. And what they what they were saying was that these people who they were you know offering this to were probably getting about sixty dollars a week, and then they offered them ten thousand dollars to smuggle like I don't know five five condoms full of cocaine, probably more. Let's be honest, but like, and they just posed a question. It was just like, would you do that? And you know, it's a very hard question for us to answer because you know you need to put ourselves in the time, you need to put ourselves in the climate. Um, you know, we're not. It's very hard to put ourselves in that in those shoes because like right now, you'd be like, oh, no, of course I wouldn't. But if you're making sixty dollars a week and you have an option of making ten thousand dollars, especially back then, and especially be like, well, you know, this could really support me and my family. It was interesting, and they said like, you know, what would your price be? And I don't know. I I kind of went, you know, trying to put myself in those shoes. I probably like, yeah, I probably I would be open to that idea. I'm not saying I'd do it, but it's something that definitely would garner my interest. You know, that kind of money, and I know like money isn't everything kind of thing, but when you're working on a farm making sixty dollars a week, and you just have this, you can have this ten thousand dollars in one hit. Yeah, it's you can understand why it's so tempting. Yeah, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't uh, look down on people for doing it. And that's the thing. You can understand their reasoning. You can understand their rationale. Yeah, um, one of the things I was saying with the 600 properties, I was uh, listening to a podcast. It's a Joe Rogan podcast. with, And they had Dan, Dan Bilzerian on there. And we, you know, Dan Bilzerian, the, the guy has all the ass and titties on, the, on his Instagram and that. I haven't heard from him in a while, actually. But uh, you know, he's a millionaire and all that. Uh, won a lot of money through poker and everything. And it's, you know, it's a pretty interesting podcast for one, but he was saying that like, you know, there his the amount that it takes for him to get a high now is just astronomical. You know, he'd say something like, if you took a homeless person out to the best restaurant in the world, right? That would have him at about a 10, 10 out of 10. And he'd be up and he'd be giddy for that for about a week. And if you took Dan Bilzerian to that same restaurant, it'd probably get him to about a five or a six. And it's, you know, it's another thing, like, kind of like with all this money, was he really, was Pablo, and like is, you know, subsequent, subsequently Dan Bilzerian really happy with themselves? Because once you do everything so much, you can't, like, it's very hard to enjoy it. Like, the reason why I enjoy doing a lot of things is because you don't, you can't do it every day. 
if I if I went to the, if that was an AFL game on every day, I would I'd get bored of it. I'd get sick of it real quick. Yeah, if um if I went snowboarding or something like that every day, I'd get sick of it real quick. But it's because it's spaced out and because you know you save dates and that for it. But with this guy, you know Dan Bazarian and my Escobar, when you have unlimited resources, unlimited money, it's very hard to find something that you actually enjoy and something that you can actually go like, fuck yeah, this is sick. And maybe for that Pablo Escobar, that was killing people. Maybe that was his high. Like, that sounds fucked up and it is. But, you know, it, everybody thinks differently at the end of the day. It's, you know, it's very interesting. Like the whole, that whole thing of like, you know, they say money, money doesn't make you happy kind of thing. Like, and I don't understand the argument um, that it can make you, it can lead to happiness and that, of course. But seeing like, you know, seeing like someone like Dan say that, especially after, you know, like you see all the pictures, all the chicks and all that. And then he kind of, he kind of says it as if like, you know, he's not miserable, but he's like, you know, it's very hard for him to be happy now. It sounds, it sounds a bit depressing, really. It's like, you don't feel sorry for him. Like, I'm not going to be that guy. I feel sorry for Dan Bilzeri. Like, he fucks too many chicks. But you know what I mean? Like, it is, it is interesting to look at it through that lens. And then, like, with Pablo, it's like, if you, you know, some of it is like the rise. And, like, the rise is better. You know, the climb's better than when you reach the, reach the summit. Um, you know, 600 properties, 8 to $30 billion dollars. Seventh richest man in the world. Like you bury bury money and forget about it. It's just mad. It's, it's crazy, isn't it? Like, isn't that just the weirdest? Like, yeah, if, I don't know. It's uh, anyway. Like, so it's funny because I was listening two days later. I listened to a podcast, and this podcast called the True Geordie Podcast. It's called um, probably be the best one I'd recommend to anybody. The guests that he gets on, uh, first of all, incredible. He has got he's had guys who are drug addicts and not not anymore. He's had guys that have been to jail for twenty years, and this one he got on was an undercover cop. This was really um this was a really interesting story because he had a lot of interesting viewpoints and a lot of heavy kind of content, like just in what he was saying. So that he did it for fourteen years, and he had this story of and he worked within the drug. He'd be undercover cop for like trying to, you know, basically bust these drug gangs, gangsters, basically these kingpins. And um, what he said was, you know, what I'd have to do is I'd manipulate people. That's what my job was. I had to manipulate people and get myself in that circle. You know, at the start it was easy because no one, you know, drug dealers and that didn't know about you know people going undercover. But once they all knew, everything was much harder. So these little operations that would take maybe a week would now take six months. You know, and then by the end of it, 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 the minimum would be six months. And he'd say something, he had this story and it was this guy that he befriended and he was just this drug dealer. And it, like, it was the drug dealer's guy who knew a guy was like the kingpin. So like, he wasn't at the top of the food chain, but he needed to get in. This is how you get in with people. And he befriended him. He was like a problematic heroin user. And yeah, he w- didn't really hang around too many people. Uh, he became friends, like, you know, he became friends with him. He, you know, hung out with him a lot. He'd have to, it's funny because he had to steal stuff from shops, like, you know, the cop did. And, you know, later on he'd have to return it and be like, sorry, it's for an, <laughs> for an operation. I thought that was pretty funny. And, yeah, he goes in 
And like one day he gives him a present, gives him like a baseball cap to this, you know, this drug drug dealer. The drug dealer picks it up and he's like, "Oh, dude, I've been it's awesome, man. Thank you so much." He was like really appreciative, uh, and like puts it on, and you know, just like something like the small as that. And he already had a hat on, but he just straight away took that off, put this new hat on, and just fought like fought the world of this cop. Uh, later on, he finds him like sobbing, finds his drug dealer sobbing in the corner. And he goes, oh, mate, what's going on? Like, what's wrong? And he's like, oh, my best mate from school died. He had a heart attack on a, on a football pitch or a soccer pitch, depending where you're from. And, yeah, he's sobbing. And he's like, I don't know how he died. He was supposed to be the healthy one. It should have been me who died. First, like, it was pretty heavy him saying that in general. And then the, the cop goes to him. He says, like, oh, are you going to go to the funeral? And the dealer just looked at him like he was an alien and just said, are you fucking stupid? You know, the last thing that this guy's family would want is some smackhead attending his funeral. I was just like a, yeah, that really hits home because like you, you look at it and you go, cause like everybody looks down on these guys. Everybody looks down on uh, dealers and addicts and users. But in this case, the person who was looking down the most was himself. He was looking down on himself and he knew that he had a problem and that was, but that was his way of living. He just had no other way. Again, like how do you, how do you get to that stage? How do you get to that stage where you're struggling? Yeah. You find yourself dealing drugs to make a living. And so anyway, the few months go by, same story and they do the bust. They get the bust in, they, they get this guy and they arrest this dealer that he's been hanging around with. And immediately he goes on the suicide watch. And like, yeah, this is, you know, this is pretty much a direct quote, but he said, it's not because he was going to jail, which he was. It wasn't because he's, you know, he was shaking from the heroin and that, but he was, which he was, but it was because he thought that the cop was his only friend in the world. It's like almost poetic. Like it was really hard to hear actually. Like I'm listening to this and it was just like, very hard not to feel anything, you know, for somebody who is in that position, who is that vulnerable to go like, you were my only friend and you did that to me. I don't know. It's just, that was hard. And that's, I guess the reason why I'm saying this part is because you look at Pablo, Pablo's on one really big extreme, but on the other side of it is this guy. And it was very, like, it was, very coincidental that I listened to this podcast about three days after the Pablo thing, which kind of matched up really nicely for this show. But that was, I thought that was, it was really sad. Like it was a bit, you know, it's hard not to get choked up by that, especially hearing it from the guy, hearing it from the cop. Um, yeah, that was, that was full on. Like still, you know, still kind of gets me going. Um, one of the things he said, and one of the quotes that I absolutely like, I've, again, it's very poetic and, you know, he said that crime isn't created by criminals. Crime is created by opportunity. Yeah, you know, he told this story about this yeah, this seventeen year old kid and he was just like yeah, just a, a guy who sold weed and you know, he's a fun you no know, nice kid, everything like that, and he got offered to see, sell different shit, heavier shit, cocaine, heroin. And you know, he went from this fun loving kid to basically this this violent little shit because he took the opportunity to basically increase his income. Yeah, you know, he says that you can't, 
if you're selling this heavy stuff, you had to be a little bit violent or you had to be ready to get violent because if you were known as a fucking, you know, as a weak one, as a weak cunt, then then you'd get torn apart. People just rob you or fucking rat you out. What are you going to do? You're, you're a little softy, you know? It was just a, you know, it was the opportunities there. And yeah, it's a, again, like, you know, crime isn't created by criminals and crime is created by opportunity. It's just a really, it's a really interesting quote. Yeah, um, he told this story and um, he told a story about this girl. She was 15 years old and it's on, online as well. I looked it up just to make sure he wasn't bullshitting. And it was this 15-year-old girl and she died from an overdose. Had MDMA and died. The, uh, they later found out that the pill that she took was 91% pure MDMA. Just to put that in, into context, your standard street strength, I guess, of, of MDMA is 58%. That was, and, you know, the mum came out and instead of the mum coming out and saying, you no, know, like, you know, you shouldn't take drugs, he basically, he basically, she basically said, sorry, that, you know, we need to regulate this. We need to regulate MDMA and we have to regulate these kind of drugs so this doesn't happen again. Yeah, it was a very interesting argument and, um, like, he gets into a bit later, but there's, yeah, and I don't know, it was, he kind of goes in, he goes in on the fact that, like, in his words, and this is an undercover cop for 14 years, and this really shocked me that this guy was like, all drugs, every drug should be legalized and should be regulated through the government. And, like, off the bat, it's such a stupid argument to me. Like, I remember, just me always thinking, the way I've always, not been brought up, but, like, I haven't had a massively strong opinion on this. But I, if I did have an opinion, be like, no, don't legalize drugs. It's stupid. But he had like a lot of decent points because in his mind, and in you know, in probably in act, in fact, if you do that, if you regulate MDMA and you like say for this for this girl's case, she doesn't die because you know what you're taking. The main reason people overdose and that is because you don't know what you're taking. You have no idea. Like if you take like they were saying. Something along like if you take like heroin that's three percent pure, and you have whatever amount you have, and the next time you have you have five percent pure, it's you're gonna notice the fucking difference. Yeah, you know, so imagine going from fifty eight percent to ninety one. Yeah, this girl didn't know what she was doing. Like you know, she just thought she was having a like a little bit of a, a little bit of fun with her parents. Like not parents, <laughs> taking up to with her parents, with her friends, and then that happens to her and. Yeah, it was. It's a very sad story. Like, and the thing is, like, and he kind of went into this thing, like, you know, people overdose on everything. Like, you know, if you if I went out to Macca's right now and had thirty cheeseburgers, I'd probably have a heart attack. Let's be honest. You know, people um, have too much alcohol. People, you know, have too much soft drink. They get diabetes and that. And, like, there's consequences for everything that you do. And in his words, like, regulating this would not only lower the rate of like people overdosing because at least they know what they're taking and they know it's not tainted and it's not a bad batch but also the you know this whole black market and this whole underground drug war would end yeah and it was again like it was just something that i listened to and i was like that's not actually the worst thing i've ever heard and like i'm not like sold on this argument but i just thought it was a really interesting argument to make like because i've just never really seen it that way 
and him coming at it from a different angle was, you know, it's kind of made me think a little bit about it. You know, if you, this whole, like in his words, he said, you know, this drug, the drug war that we have is never going to end, really. And like, that's, that's a general statement, really. The drug war will never end. If in Australia, say, if next week the biggest drug kingpin got it busted, then guess, like, the next week after, it would all change. No, of course it wouldn't. It wouldn't change. It'd just be another guy, you know, this business is a drug business at the end of the day, and it is a business. So, the way he said it was, yeah, and like, it was also, it's a bit of a generational thing, let's be honest. Like, I I see it as, I, um... You know, like the older, like the older you are, especially with everything, like, like if you're older, you probably think that drugs are bad, okay, and you know, like a lot of older people, let's be honest, are like are racist, are homophobic. They don't really, they're not really understanding, and they don't really, they're kind of in that stage where they're a bit too old to be changed as well. Yeah, I was talking to a um a guy who is who's now retired, and that just shows how old he is, like. And he kind of said to me, and he's like, oh, well, you know, when you go out and that with your friends, do you, like, and you drive home, are you just driving home drunk? And I said, no, of course not. Like, why would I? Like, you know, I don't want to lose my license. And he's, and he literally looked at me, he's like, I don't know how you guys do it. Like, you know, back in the day, we'd all just drive home absolutely smashed. And, it, you know, again, it's just a sign of the times. You know, if you got caught back in the day, you were considered unlucky if you get caught today you're an idiot like why would you do that it's so stupid like you know the rules out there and like they knew the rules back then as well and that's you know they use that kind of they use that to back them up and be like oh it's a different time back then but of course they knew what was going on like you kidding me you know, i was talking to this one guy and like this is whole this is you know, as i say it's a generational thing but when you know if if a you know a person who is racist or homophobic or whatever has a kid in that, prob- there is a chance that they're going to pass that down. And I remember, this is, I don't know why I remember this so clearly. This happened about three or four years ago at a party. And this guy came up to us and was just talking. And then he said this really, really racist comment. Because there was this, you know, this, um, this black guy there. And he said something, called him the N-word. And like, not to his face, but like, you know, I hate it when they, no, these N-words are here, like, you know, come to these parties. I always feel like I'm going to get stabbed. And I just went, are you I'm like, what? And he's like, oh, don't worry. Like, yeah, I know I'm racist and I'm like, and homophobic. I just, you know, I just can't help. It's just who I am. And it like really pissed me off because like the worst part is, and like, you know, it's, it's never good to be those things and everything like that. But for him to actually know that he's like that and still do it and still, and use that almost as an excuse, be like, oh, sorry. Like, that's just the way I was brought up. Like that was just so, it was infuriating to me that somebody could do that. Yeah, it was, I don't know, it's just, it was really interesting. And, like, it was interesting to hear him say that and then use that as a defense mechanism. Oh, no, no, it's like, don't worry, buddy. Like, it's just the way I was brought up. And, like, his girlfriend's, like, hitting him, going, like, like you know, not hitting him, but, like, you know, slapping him on the arm, going, like, don't, come on, don't say that. He's like, well, it's what I feel like. You know, I'm like, well, keep those fucking thoughts to yourself, to be honest. Like, it was, yeah, it's, and, like, again, it's a generational thing. And, like, same with, you know, drugs and that, like, you know, the next generation might probably be a bit more lenient and it's same with, like, I think with equal rights and stuff like that, when you really think about it, it's it's almost like we're waiting for this older generation to die out so we can actually make a change in that department. 
Because it's, it really is. It's the higher-ups. It's the older people who make these decisions at the end of the day. Yeah, it's um, back to like when I, with the undercover cop. It was like, yeah, he was just kind of talking about it. It's a really, first of all, it's an incredible podcast, really. I do recommend it. It's called, I think it's called like Undercover Cop Reveals. I'll excuse the clickbait title. It is a good interview. But he was just saying by the end of it, he actually felt like he did more harm than good. And that was in, that was very telling as well. Because he said, you know, throughout his kind of operations and that, he would be putting away these little guys, like, you know, these just kind of guys who are not really in a great place. And he'd be like, you know, the ends justified the means when I got the big bad guy. That was it. That was what he'd kind of keep telling himself. But by the time he got to that story before, when the, the guy with his only friend, he said like, he couldn't do it anymore. He said that that was just, that one was too much. You know, and he gave it in. And he gave it in, I think it might have been 10 years ago. Yeah, it was... um. It's very, very, very cool. And like, yeah, he kind of raised the question of like, if you, yeah, if you grow up and you see people living a certain way and then all of a sudden you get offered to, you know, join that, would you do it? And you like, it's not like you don't have to agree with it, but again, you can see where, you see why people think the way they do. And you can see, if you, if I saw one, you know, a friend of mine, who's like rolling up and, you know, uh, I don't know, what do the kids drive these days? Hummers. They definitely drive Hummers. Um, if your kids, you know, someone rocks up in a new new Hummer and that, and he's got a house and everything like that, and he's, you know, loaded to the, you know, loaded to the gills. And he said, you know, I do want, you know, maybe I can get you some work where I am. And you didn't know, if you knew nothing about it, you'd be like, oh, fuck yeah, like, that'd be awesome. Like, I want to you know, live that lifestyle. And like for the average person, like there'd be a lot of people who once they find out what they're doing, wouldn't really be deterred by it. And again, like you could probably see where they're coming from. Like, it's not like you don't have to agree, of course, but it's just, it was interesting. And yeah, it's, it kind of came down to the point of like, he would say that you, the chances of anyone getting caught in this industry is so minimal because it was literally in his words, like finding a needle in a haystack. You know, this drug game, this drug war, whatever you want to call it, is so big. As I said, you know, you could uh, you could find the biggest drug kingpin in Australia and the world, it's just going to keep ticking over. Someone else is just going to take their place at the end of the day, isn't it? Like, And so, yeah, you kind of came in and you, like, to f- you actually get done, you'd actually be incredibly unlucky because there's so many people involved in it. And for you to get pointed out, you'd have to be pretty high up or a pretty shit, like pretty obvious dealer kind of deal. But yeah, like I thought it was an interesting kind of concept of like, you're going from, especially going from like the Pablo thing and seeing someone who's completely evil to seeing that, you know, that, yeah, that guy you kind of feel sorry for. And then the, um, the argument of like legalizing drugs, cause you have, you honestly have two different sides of it right there from the Pablo era, from the Pablo side of it and the other, you know, and this other side of it. Again, it's like, you know, I'm not sold on the idea, but I, I definitely see where people come from. I really do. I see that it's not this, it's not as stupid of an idea as I once thought. Yeah, it would do a lot of good. Um, you know, there are arguments against it, of course. One of, my, one of the main arguments I would make is, which I made on the first podcast, was that I would be more inclined to do drugs if I could, get, if I could easily get them. You know what I mean? Like, I could, if I could... 
go up to the supermarket, I think I said, or an IGA, I said, that's what I said then at least, and get, you know, a pack of pills or whatever, I'd be more inclined to do that, whether that's on a cost reason or whatever. But the difference is that people, at least you know what you're getting if, you, if they were regulated. And at least you'd know that these guys, you know, it hasn't been manufactured by this weird kind of sweatshop factory in Malaysia and been sent over. You just don't know what's in it. You have no idea. And yeah, it came, it's really, it makes a lot of sense that way. And like, yeah, it's, it's just a bit of, again, it's a bit of food for thought kind of thing. Yeah. There isn't a whole lot of, um, arguments really for it. And he kind of said, you know, people need to get with the times. And he said, you know, that in this day and age, it is very much a, um, it's very much a necessity that they do this soon. And, you know, they make a lot of money, the government would, like you tax it. You know, it, I think, you know, again, it would lower overdoses. It would, you know, the problem would be that more people would take it, like more casual people. But that being said, anybody who wants to find drugs can find drugs. It's not, the thing is like, this isn't like, you know, I call it a black market before, but especially here, it's not really a black market. You're literally like a text message away or two text messages. Like, you know, you either know somebody who would deal it or you know a friend of a friend. It's a, you know, it's not hard to find drugs. If you want them, you can get them. And that's the difference. Like, you know, people go, oh, legalize, like a big argument's like, oh, legalizing drugs, you don't want people to be able to get them so easily. It's like, they can. Like, and at the end of the day, you can get them as easy as you want them. And yeah, it might, I don't know, it could even like deter people from getting, you know, who would want to fucking, who would want to go to a pharmacy and buy heroin off the counter? Like you'd look, you'd, people would look really interesting at you. You know what I mean? And like, again, like, and they said, you know, these kind of drugs as well can be used as a healing thing. Uh, yeah, you could be, it could be used as like kind of medication in like rare, very rare cases. It wouldn't be like, oh, you sprained your ankle? Oh, here's a, here's a fucking dab of heroin. Dab? Yeah. <laughs> dab of heroin. You know, like, that's obviously not how it work. But yeah, again, a bit of food for four. I really, I'm not sold on this argument, but I really like it. I really like the idea of it because like, it's a really good argument to argue either way. You know, there's people who, I know, I know somebody who like has a relative who is a cop and has a friend who is like a, I think it's like Ambo Drive, like a paramedic or something like that. And like, you know, she hears all these stories of like, you know, these people overdosing in that. And it's horrible to hear, of course. And like, you know, you don't want to hear that stuff. And like, it's, of you know, these substances and that are killing people. And of course they are. I guess the main, what this guy, this guy's arguing that, they're killing people because they don't know what's in it. You know, there's this, there's this story, um, again, another podcast by this true Geordie guy called Addict to Activist. And he comes out and, you know, this guy's in the peak of his, like, his addiction. He steals a brick of cocaine, uh, not cocaine. He steals a brick of heroin from his uh, dealer, bashes him. And like, what a stupid idea, for, first of all. <laughs> Bash a dealer. That, that word's going to get out real quick. And he... Um, he goes to his local McDonald's because this is how, this is you know, he's pretty fucked up back in his day. And he like scraped some off and did his usual dosage. What he didn't know is that the dealer didn't cut the heroin with his other stuff. And he was having basically pure heroin. Yeah. 10 minutes later, he was in the back of an ambulance overdosing. Again, like, you know, that was a case of he didn't know what he was putting in his body. I could give somebody a fucking Panadol and so, like, and you know, if I went to a club, I could sell Panadols and say they're pills. Yeah, you know, like, and yeah, you know, there are some, and people would buy them because, but they just see a pill. 
that's the scary thing. Like, you're buying the shit off people, and they could be giving you anything, man. They could give you a fucking gummy bear and be like, oh, it's, it's a fucking, you know, it's a hallucinogenic. Like, that's really scary to hear that people can do that. And they will. Like, you know, people want to make money at the end of the day. They'll, they'll cut down your fucking pill to, you know, from 50% to 30% to 20% to whatever so they can make more profit. Because at the end of the day, they're not in the, like, dealers at the end of the day really are in, the, in for the money. Like, and they, they might like, the, some people might like the social aspect, but a lot, in a lot of cases, it's a very lonely kind of life. And, like, you just want to make a bunch, you want to make a bunch of money, maybe on the side from your job, and that might help pay for a lot of things down the line. You know, if regulation came in, that goes. You don't have these, you, you don't have these dealers. You don't have all this violence because the black market is a very violent place. They don't have, they can't have lawyers. They can't go to court. Like, oh, sorry, I, I want to sue you for, you know, for not paying me for that cocaine. Like, that's not how it works. Yeah, like, just like, and marijuana is a bad example, but I will use it like, you know, they've legalized in a bunch of places in America. Crime's gone down in every place they've legalized it. And I'm not going to be that guy who's like, oh, you have to legalize marijuana or anything like that because I'm yeah, I'm not educated enough in the argument to make a valid point. I'm not going to be that guy who's like, oh, you should leave and learn just to get high and all that shit. But, yeah, because I'm not arguing that. I'm arguing for everything. It is, you know, I, I do look at it weird because you see something like, like, you know, the fact of people actually buying something like heroin and ice over the counter doesn't sit right with me. I understand where he's coming from in that sense. Like, you know, again, you want to know what you're putting into yourself. But that part gets me like, yeah, I don't know. Like, I'd have to maybe do a bit more research on it to really come up with a foolproof opinion. But uh, yeah, it's, I like it. I, I think that, I think there's a really decent argument to make. And I think that's something that, like, I can understand why people would think that way. And I could understand why people think the other way. And that's that's the beauty of this kind of argument. Because I think that, again, like, like I said the first episode, like, it's good to understand. You don't have to agree with something to understand it at the end of the day. And I think that's probably the best way of putting it. You know, I, there's just, like, so many things, like, you know, uh, like religion or any like anything, like any of the big shit. Like, you don't have to agree with the way people think. But you can understand where they're coming from. You can understand why they think the way they do. You know, like, yeah, like, you know, crime isn't created by criminals. Crime is created by opportunity. It's pretty crazy. It's a very interesting quote. But, uh, yeah, um, yeah, I think just, again, opportunity is the key word there. And if you, you look back at everything kind of I've said, there's just so many times that somebody took an opportunity to you know, further themselves. And I'm not saying it's the right thing to do, it's just, you know, what they decided to do. And they, they saw an opportunity in front of each in themselves and they said, you know, I want to do that. Uh, yeah, I like, it all kind of ties in. It all ties in well. And yeah, I'm I'm not going to do a, a like, you know, break and come back and talk about some random stuff today. I'm just going to, because I'm kind of happy with what this has all been about. I want to keep this kind of focused to a point. Um, you know, before I do go, I just want to say thank you to everybody who's still listening. Um, it is very much appreciated. This is very fun for me. I am enjoying myself. And, um, yeah, I'm really excited to see if I can get some people on in the future and kind of see if I can 
grow. And I think one of the cool things about this is, just before I head off, is that it challenges me to uh, kind of find things to talk about because you can't talk about the same stuff every week and you need to find new stuff. You need to find relevant stuff. Yeah, and the idea is to try and, you know, for me to learn so I can hopefully, you know, a listener can maybe go, oh, shit, I didn't know that. Or maybe, you know, maybe a few of the things I've said today, just a few of the facts or a few of the stories, you might, you know, use at one stage in a conversation when you, you get on a certain topic. I guess that's the idea. Um, but, you know, it's, it's it's something that I'm excited to see what I can do in the future because, it, again, the challenge is there and to do this every week by yourself and find re- relevant stuff to talk about is the challenge. And, you know, for anybody who wants to do it, you can leave a review. Um, you know, give me some feedback. I really do enjoy it. If you disagree with me, please, you know, I love talking about stuff like that. That's the best part of it. I don't care if you disagree with me. There's no problem with that. Tell me why why you think I'm wrong. And that's that's so we can have a discussion. And as long as you don't yell at me and you don't for having a different opinion than you, I'll, I'll listen. Otherwise, again, as I said in my first episode, you're not worth my time. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Nick Brown, Frowny Brown from Frowny Brown Town. This is the 14th reason. This is Vivi from What Culture. This is El Diablo, El Dorado, El Dorito. And of course, this is Close, Close to the Sun coming at you every Tuesday. Crime isn't created by criminals. Crime is created by opportunity. I don't know. That just haunts me a little bit. Isn't it great? Just kind of having that opinion. You know, just hearing those stories, it's just very difficult. It's very, very hard to have an opinion when you just haven't been involved in that world. And I don't know, hearing those stories just, yeah, it chokes me up.